I don't want to be so gross and like harp on this, but like I still have a fucking open wound on my toe. <laughs> Anyways, that's not the point. That's not at all the point. Um, uh, we should start soon. Are you gonna press? Start I soon? have. I did press record, but Ugh. I feel like we don't want to have any of this in this. No, nobody needs to hear about my disgusting wound. No. Okay. Well, I think we talked about a little bit. Okay, I do have something that I want to talk yeah, about please. right off the top. Let's hear it. Okay, so this is the fact that I completely forgot one of the most hilarious and best facts about Wagyu that I was, like, so excited to tell you about. Oh, no! Okay, yeah, fit it in now. Kobe Bryant. R.I.P., I guess, but then, like, also never... But but never forget the sexual assault allegations. Oh, I didn't... See, I feel like I don't hear enough about anything. This is, like... Also, again, listening back to the previous episodes when it's like Bon Appetit and it's like, oh yeah, all these fucking issues. It's like, I am not hearing these things. And it's like, yes, I acknowledge that that's my privilege to just like put my head under the fucking sand and hope for the best. So like, thanks for telling me about these things. Sorry that Kobe Bryant is potentially a sexual predator. Also, this story makes him sound like a huge dick. Um, Let's hear it. So in 2010, he sued the ancient city of Kobe for quote, using his name. That did not really happen, did it? Yes. Here's a quote from his lawyer. Quote, Kobe gets paid a lot of money by a lot of major companies to have his name associated with their products. And now this Japanese beef is reaping the benefits of all his hard work. I mean, if Gatorade had a flavor named Kobe and wasn't paying him for it, we'd be suing them too. (laughs) That's the best thing I've ever heard. The best, no, the best part is that he was literally named after Kobe beef. (laughs) Yeah, like, obviously, of course he was named after it. That's so stupid. Oh, my. Uh, 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 Yep. Wow. So. Well, Kobe Bryant's a dick. Um, you mentioned 2010 is the year that that was in, and I really want to tell you a weird fact about tomatoes right off the top. That was yes. Okay, so this is, I I wanted to address it later, but I guess we're talking about it now. So in 2010. The Israeli government started creating these things that were like, what's the fucking word for like, when you tell people nice things? Kudos? No, it starts like a P. It's like promotion. Praise? No, it's not praise. It's not promotion. I don't know. Prog. Prog. Okay, let me read the part that I actually have written down here. So Mm -hmm. in 2010, Israel declared that they had invented the cherry tomato. Great. <laughs> so just enjoy that. Um, Israelis could access a pamphlet in the Tel Aviv airport. That's not the P word I was thinking about, by the way. On how to talk about their countries and included a list of 10 famous Israeli inventions, listing the cherry tomato as one of them. After this publication, also not the P word I was thinking about, they continued <laughs> to expound on this idea saying, after bringing the world the cherry tomato, a virus-resistant tomato, and the long-life tomato... Israel adds a new star to the Red Fruits lineup. A tomato that doesn't drip. Um, Clearly, the tomato was important to the Israeli cultural identity. But less so to their diet is it's not found to be hugely popular. And, oh, sorry, not the tomato, but the cherry tomato specifically. Like, there are tomatoes in their foods. But we don't see a lot of cherry tomatoes being used. So it's like, what the fuck is this about? Um, (laughs) Which is insane. So it's seen within Israel as a symbol of modernity as a symbol of invention uh these pamphlets were called hasbara by the way um and it's part of this externally facing marketing ploy but it had the greatest impact on people within the country like everyone outside of israel was like this is fake news like y'all are tripping 
And then everyone within Israel was like, aren't we great for thinking things up? Like, good on us, hey? Um, anyways, when the scientist that is credited with this invention, Nachium Kidar, is asked, he freely references the cherry tomato as the ancestor of the modern commercial tomato, but insists that they crossbred the cherry tomato with these other larger tomatoes so that they could stay shelf stable for long enough to bring the price in line with something that consumers would pay for. So before they would just like rot way too quick for people to buy them. And so nobody was doing it. And also the harvesting of these cherry tomatoes was quite labor intensive. So just like nobody was fucking getting them. They're like, this is stupid. So cherry tomatoes really took off after this, but he like fully admits that they were a thing beforehand. Anyways, that's a fun fact about 2010 and tomatoes as well. I'm not gonna lie. I was starting to get convinced. <laughs> like, as you listen to that, you're just like, okay, like, I mean, crazier shit has happened. Like, I don't fucking sure. know. As I was reading the article, I was just like, I can't tell if this is a smear campaign. I can't tell. And like, the article that I read that had this fact in it was definitely pro-Palestine. So like, is that Palestine? Mm. Not Palestinian? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, so I was like... Palestine. Yeah. And aren't we all from Palestine? Like, a little bit? Like I don't know. We are not qualified to discuss I, that. As we're not I, qualified to discuss anything because this is Pantry Staples with Emily and Marika where nobody knows anything. We did. Yeah. Your favorite foods. Wow. Our speediest and most chaotic intro yet. Um, so, yeah. It's... It's going great, as you can tell from whatever minute mark this is. We're just, again, professionalism, grace. Just... <laughs> Do you know what? So this is, I would also like to acknowledge, this is the first episode we've recorded since we've actually published an episode. So this is the mm. first time that, like, strangers have heard this, like, or other episodes before and have given feedback. And by strangers, I mean our moms and our best <laughs> friends. So what a peek behind the curtain. <laughs> what a peek behind the curtains. Perry goes, it'd be cool if you guys fucking introduced yourself better than just your names. Like we have no, no, like there's no reason to know or care about who you are. So would you like to describe I mean, yourself a little bit, Marika? No. <laughs> cool. Me either. I just like, I can't even be bothered. And also like, I'm definitely not interesting enough for anyone to give a fuck. I like, Truly. again, nobody should be listening to this. It's like a completely nonsensical thing. But uh, I guess I think the main thing for me, at least in terms of an introduction, is that like this podcast is the product of like obviously quarantine because what else were white bitches doing? But also the fact that like I am now living in a very like I'm halfway across the country from like the people that I love the most, including you. And I don't yeah. get to see you all the time. And it's just like nice to have this like exchange like it. This, this the project to work on together as opposed to getting to see you literally every day at work so I think for me that's my main motus operandus at the mo and also like I like food and I'm curious about history and blah 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 <laughs> well I think that's lovely and I also feel the same way and I think that kind of in case you hadn't noticed from listening to now what is what is this our eighth ninth I don't know eighth episode we hope that it feels like you're just in a conversation or like listening in on two bitches at a restaurant, just like screaming at each other about a specific food, because that is literally what we're doing. Like we're just exactly friends telling each other facts. And then also you, because I guess we're all friends now. Oh, isn't like you. <laughs> Shout out to Candace, our number one listener at the Mo. Everyone be like Candace, rate, review, subscribe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that. Also, like, check out our Instagram. It's Pantry Staples Pod. Now here on the oh, eighth no. episode should be like... 
Eh, whatever we'll get to it it's fine uh yeah like our picks y'all thank you listeners um oh yeah today's episode tomatoes oh yeah we're talking about tomatoes that's why we discussed the cherry tomatoes in israel we're also going to talk about other kinds of tomatoes and uh that's that so tomatoes Firstly, before we even start discussing the history of it, I want to acknowledge that this is probably the first time on this podcast. Well, no, it's not probably. It's definitely the first time on this podcast where the history of this food doesn't necessarily always start with consumption. This is something that when it's first introduced to a new location, isn't always immediately eaten. Like how fucking weird is that? The first thing a food does in a new place isn't being eaten. So this is the thing about tomatoes is that like they are within the family of toxic plants and tomatoes when you eat them for the first time like not the first time just in general when you eat them you can understand that this is not necessarily a food that's like easy on your body and like if small genetic changes like or molecular stuff whatever I don't know I'm not a fucking botanist changed (laughs) I said that so defensively like no shade on the botanist I really I I don't know botanists are cool I wish I was one Maybe I'm just, I, the self-loathing is there. It's fine. I want to be a botanist when I grow up. It's okay. I didn't sense shade. I think, I didn't sense nightshade. <laughs> you didn't sense nightshade? Thank you. That was great. Um, That Thank was, you. that was quality. Thank you Thank for you. that. Um, anyways. So like, it's again, you can see that if the tomatoes change just slightly, you would easily have something that is quite toxic. So mm-hmm. it's not originally like a super popular food. At least in, like, some countries when it gets there and it's introduced. Yeah. So let's talk about its origins in the South America and Mexico. So firstly, the wild tomato is found spanning a coastal area from Ecuador to northern Chile and the Galapagos Islands. Tomatoes were most likely first domesticated in the Puebla, Veracruz area of Mexico. It arrived here as a weedy cherry tomato, but soon became the larger fruited tomatoes that we know. So... This means that we're seeing it in South America. We're seeing it in Mexico. How the hell did it get to Mexico from South America? How? Well, we've got a couple of ideas. Uh, it means the mi- the means of migration is largely unknown. We don't have substantial proof for this. However, it's supposed that migratory birds are probably the largest uh, source of the movement. Uh, they were carrying the seeds. Uh, but we can also attribute it a little bit to wind, a little bit to waves, and a little bit to humans. Um, like birds in their poop? Yeah, birds in their poop. Poop seeds. Oh, poop. Yep, bless. Um, so it's being brought from the Andean. Is it Andean region? Why can't I pronounce sure. anything? It's so embarrassing. Anyways, uh, to Mesoamerica. It's also suggested that the human movement, so like they're taking the seeds either within their bodies or within like their clothes or the actual plants themselves because maybe they fucking wanted to grow these plants elsewhere. I don't know their business. Um there, that's maybe the reason for the spread of tomatoes. But archaeologists actually believe that seafaring trade was happening in 1600 BCE, so it's very probable that humans were doing this. But on a side note, do you think we're preventing foods from being moved organically around the globe by shitting indoors? <gasps> I had never thought of it. I mean, I guess animals are still, like, doing I it. think birds are, for the most part, like, the main carriers. And I was actually talking to Jenna about this, and she says, especially with, like, spicy peppers, because birds don't sense the heat like the spice of it so they're oh. the ones carrying it and like or they're, they're the ones eating it and then carrying it in their feces to other areas as opposed to other animals where they're like oh it's so spicy i'm not gonna fucking eat it 
that's so fun. Why can't birds? I mean, I, you don't know why. I'm I have no idea. <laughs> I wish I knew. I, uh, I'm, is it ornithology? Is that what birds are? Ornithology? Yeah. That sounds like it's only about owls for some reason. Because of the O? <laughs> yeah, but also because like, I don't know, like, or like, it's like a horn and like, there's the great horned owl. I don't mm. know. Tell us about tomatoes because this is, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Anyways, so, so yeah, birds shitting outside. We probably don't need to shit outside to move food around. I think is the long and short of that. Yeah. Um, anyways, so there's also green tomatoes that are native to Mexico, which can be assumed to be consumed as early as uh, 1590 BCE due to the remains of basalt greater bowls that are found in excavations from the Valley of Mexico. So the this echoes the salsa with green tomatoes that's still made today. So which is really interesting that we have this continuity being shown. But this is, again, a slightly different variety of tomato. So it's not the same like red juicy tomato that we're seeing in our minds when we think of it. Not that it's not equally as tomatoey, but you know a thing and it's also another instance like as with corn of those like mesoamericans taking something that would otherwise be like completely inedible and transforming it yeah it's really interesting how there is and it's i feel like the mesoamerican area is so interesting to look at because on the one hand at least from the very basic research that we've done it seems as though this is a place that is like both so abundant and so fertile with food and like delicious natural fruits and vegetables. But on the other hand, had originally this real like inability to provide for humans that needed to Mm. be reconciled with. Like it seems that we needed intervention before it could be hospitable. So we see these remains. That's really cool. But all of this said, we still, regardless of, you know, any archaeological remains dating to like 5090 or sorry, 5090 BCE or like any of the other stuff that we see, we still have a really, really hard time substantiating timelines as well as popularity, as well as the levels of domestication, mainly because the archaeological records are inconclusive. This is probably because tomatoes as a fruit deteriorate really quickly and really mm. like, like most of them are gone. Like we don't yeah. have anything that can be made into fossils, any of that sort of stuff. Even the seeds, because of the means of preparation, like we're making a lot of salsas, which is being ground down. We're making a lot of stews. So that's being ground and like boiled down. The seeds themselves are not being maintained in their like protected state because of the preparation. So we have no fucking evidence, which is a nightmare. (laughs) Anyways. Regardless, though, we can confirm that these tomato plants were important and likely consumed because of the presence of names in several indigenous languages of both the wild and the cultivated variety of tomatoes. So we have, like, not just one, but several indigenous languages address this product, which is so cool. So clearly, like, a thing that's going on there. So I'm going to jump from, like, indeterminate history time to 1519. Which is when the Spanish douche canoes arrived in (laughs) South America slash Mexico. (sighs) What? I'm not going to call them the fucking colon. Like, I don't know. There's no other fucking term that properly encapsulates the bullshit that we've now dealt with. Like, no, it's literally perfect because A, they came on boats. and Thank you. They were jerks. They were jerks. Also, I just feel like they're the kind of people who would douche if they would. Douching? What a horrifying idea. Um, anyways, unnecessary so, and frankly bad for you. Frankly bad for you. It's an ecosystem, y'all. Keep it tidy, but don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> that is vaginal health with Emily and Marika. You're welcome. Keep it Clean tidy, it but don't touch. worry about it. 
Um, please edit that out too. I'm not qualified to be giving that advice even more so than I'm not qualified to talk about tomatoes. That Um, might be the title of our episode. So I'm not qualified (laughs) anyways. Um, when they arrived in, uh, Tino Chitlan and I'm saying that wrong again, I'm so sorry. Um, I want to be better at this and I listened to the pronunciation online, but this is so funny. So Jenna and I were like, I was doing a read through with her earlier because I was like, I need to practice these names. And that was one of the ones where I was like, I don't know how to say it. And she's like, I don't either. Let's look it up online. And then it led us to a fucking parody website that just spelled it or something. And I'm like, what the fuck? Well, you did your due diligence. I tried my best. So if anyone knows, that'd be cool. Or just like, know that I'm sorry. Um, anyway, so this is in 1519. There's markets in this area that have this incredible variety of tomatoes, all sizes, all shapes, all colors. It's described as offering large tomatoes, small tomatoes, green tomatoes, leaf tomatoes, thin tomatoes, sweet tomatoes, large serpent tomatoes, nipple-shaped tomatoes, coyote tomatoes, <laughs> sand tomatoes, and those which are yellow, very yellow, quite yellow, red, very red, quite ruddy, bright red, reddish, rosy dawn colored (laughs) i have no words though like when you think of this insane market just like overflowing with these i just want to know what a coyote tomato looks like like is it shaped like a coyote i i'm not gonna lie to you i didn't look it up but uh no why would you that's my bad i assume in all of these that it's just i don't think it's like how could you have a a tomato that looks like a coyote like that doesn't make any sense no no um i wonder what that word is actually in spanish that's a whole other thing um anyways isn't it a spanish word is it a region and we're being assholes probably oh sorry that's what i'm saying is it's either like a region in in mexico or it's like kind of like a word that was translated poorly probably something like that anyways lots of different kinds of tomatoes wild times um (laughs) One of the colonizers, these douche canoes, uh, Bernal Diaz wrote that when the conquistadors went through Chahula on their way from Veracruz to Tenochtitlan, the Indians wanted to kill us and eat our meat, and that they had their cooking pots ready, prepared with chili peppers, tomatoes, and salt. He also mentions that the Aztecs ate the arms and legs of their sacrificial victims with a chimole sauce made with chili peppers, tomatoes, and onions, and salt. The ingredients are nearly the same as that of salsa mexicana that is in use in most Mexican homes today. So that descriptor is amazing because one, sounds delicious. I would love to Sounds delicious. I'd eat that. That sounds great. So one, at least they're acknowledging that they're super unwelcome. Not really doing much about it, but there we go. Uh, And two, sounds delightful. And also like tomatoes, so central that like even in a dish where they're going to eat their enemies, tomatoes must be involved. How fun is that? So from here, the typical pattern of returning colonizers dispersing new food stuff to the countries that they traded with and creating an almost instant staple in Europe and further east is not followed, which is so interesting. Mm. So, okay, when we've talked about avocados, when we've talked about corn, we see them going back immediately. That's fucking everywhere. Like corn, oh my God, it does not stop moving. Yes. But we're not seeing that with tomatoes because bitches are scared, which fair enough. (laughs) So they're going to be <clears throat> they, part okay. of the dish in which they're eaten. Well, that's no. not true. I'm that that's definitely just a description used to like uh fearmonger. What's the word? Fear well and like otherize and Yeah, otherize and like, you know, no. No. Th- that's not why they're scared. 
Tomatoes were viewed with suspicion uh, suspicion and wariness because Europeans, even Italians, who would later incorporate the tomato into their diets in such an enormous way, had only known foods of the same family as toxic. So like I said, we see deadly nightshade. We see things that aren't edible being very Mm -hmm. similar to this, and they are worried. So it's not hugely popular to start. Then, beyond this, they might have gotten a really bad reputation because they're using pewter plates in Europe for the most part. (laughs) So the acidity in the tomatoes is breaking Mm -hmm. down the pewter to a point that Mm -hmm. the lead in these plates is leaching back into the food and giving the people consuming this product lead poisoning. Have I screamed at you about, like, the lead theory of as to, like, why boomers are the way they are? No, but I love that so much. Are boomers the way they are because they just ate a bunch of lead and are insane now? Because there was, like, leaded gasoline until, like, the 70s. Oh my god, was there? Mm-hmm. That's why gasoline is called unleaded. Because it used to be leaded. Okay, but how would that have affected them? I'm curious now. Is it just because, like, when it burns because... in the air? Yes! Well, that's deeply upsetting. Everyone go look this up because it's wild. (laughs) Everyone is literally mentally handicapped because... And this is, again, the thing is, like, all of the modern shit that we've done is so untested and tried that we're going to find out in 20 years that everything that we're doing right now is super deadly. So we're here for a good time, not a long time, people. That is the number one advice. Keep your vagina tidy and prepare to die. (sighs) Anyways... So yeah, lead poisoning. Crazy. So we're not seeing a lot of people wanting to eat this because they don't fucking know what's going on. They're stressed. Botanists were planting them mainly because they liked to collect exotic flora. So like things like plants coming from the Americas were really popular. But even then, tomato flowers aren't that pretty. They smell kind of funny. Like they're not (laughs) display things. Like this, it wasn't a hit for the botanists either, to be totally frank. Um, Yes. The people that were mostly interested in tomatoes and were like, yeah, let's bring these over. Let's do this shit were physicians because in the 1500, yeah, 1500s, the fucking mm-hmm. plague is still around y'all. The plague in case y'all forgot from your social studies, uh, eight or nine, whatever year that was, uh, it was a big fucking deal. One in three people died. It literally triggered a revolution and, uh, you died really horrifically. Also, they had those funny beak masks. Anyways. So these physicians are dealing with the fucking plague still. But you know what else they're dealing with? Syphilis. Mm. So they're like, they got a lot to deal with in general. So they're like, I don't know, maybe some of these weird foreign flowers will help. I can't tell. Like, just (laughs) shove a tomato at the problem. I don't, I don't know. Anyways, so then (laughs) around the turn of the 17th century in Spain, a priest in King Philip II's court wrote in his book, Agricultura de Jardins de Tatra de la manera que se han de criar, gobernar y conservar las plantas on tomatoes. This is, I know, I'm sorry, guys. Um, It just kept going. The title was so fucking long, right? I'm like, holy shit. Um, There was no other option but to say the whole thing. I couldn't just be like, agriculture de jardines, blah, blah, blah. Look it up because nobody's going to. Um, Anyways, so he writes, tomatoes. There are two or three kinds. It's a plant that bears some segmented fruits that turns red and do not smell. It is said that they are good for sauces, which I feel like is a huge understatement because sauces is mainly what tomatoes are in these days. He wasn't wrong. No, he's he wasn't not wrong. wrong. They have seeds, last for two or three years, and require a lot of water. There is a kind said to be from Cairo, which when I later did research because I was looking for tomatoes in other foreign countries, I didn't see anything about Egyptian tomatoes. 
but maybe again my research is probably just like inconclusive on that subject yeah it's just again this is the main thing that i found from this is like as much as i would really like to know all this stuff it's like i am limited by one my lack of research abilities which i'm sorry for but also (laughs) by the lack of like languages that i speak and the lack of like uh information in general that's coming out of these eastern countries which you know we're working to rectify and i'm going to do my very best and i'm very sorry so continuing later in the 17th century a decline in crop production in spain specifically but europe in general led to a renewed interest in tomatoes as a source of nourishment so basically everyone is so fucking hungry that they're like i don't know maybe i'll try this fucking poisonous plant like let's just <laughs> see what goes um so by the 18th century tomatoes along with other foods from the americas were firmly cemented into the diets of europeans the Spanish food historian Nestor Lujan had written that some would like to believe that Spanish and Italian cuisines only began with the introduction of the tomato because so many dishes cannot be made without it. By the time mm. pizza was invented in Naples in, 18, in the 1880s, tomatoes were definitely being eaten. And like you can't pizza have- Pizza was invented in the 1880s? Don't ask me about that because I would like to us eventually have a conversation about pizza more formally. And in which case, maybe this research will be incorrect. But I did find that like a couple of places that's like the supposed date, which seems I think it very like I think that seems like a very reasonable time frame for it to be started from. I know. I think it's just it's interesting because it's like so fundamental. I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about pizza in a bit, but it is so fundamental. And that's the other thing, too, is like and I'm going to talk a little bit about this in general, but like think of some very classic European dishes. Okay, so from France, you have ratatouille that has tomatoes in it. Think about Italy. Literally everything on the fucking menu plus pizza has tomatoes in it. Let's think about Spain. Gazpacho. That's literally tomato soup. All of these dishes are so deeply like affected by new new world scare quotes around that uh bullshit foods that like it's it's just crazy that we can even think of them as being like the national kind of identity and food culture of these places like i have these really cool um coffee table books that are just like food like culture basically of italy and i have one on spain and i have one on france and the one for italy has a fucking tomato on the front of it like that's the graphic they picked because of course Mm -hmm. it is but it's not, and that's insane. So let's talk about tomatoes abroad a little bit. So the Turks are credited with spreading the tomato into the Balkans, the Levant, Levant? I think it's Levant. Oh, no. Levant sounds right, but it's Levant. The I think Levant is. Levant. Anyways, Iran, Arabia, and Ethiopia. Thank God I know how to pronounce those at least. Um, through trade, these areas, uh, through trade, tomatoes were introduced to these areas and they became staples. The salad, Peperonata was hugely popular with minimal variations across the Mediterranean. So this and these other areas, basically all the places just listed, they were still eating the salad with like in a very similar way, which is quite an enormous scope to be eating something very similar, which I think is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Tomatoes were brought by the Spanish into the Philippines because they were the colonizers of that area. Thanks again, Spanish people. Uh. Um, But through the Philippines, tomatoes were then introduced to China. This probably happened quite early on, like rapidly after uh, tomatoes were brought over to Europe because of the naming conventions that we see for tomatoes in China, which is really interesting. So tomatoes in Chinese are called barbarian eggplants, which is amazing. Thank you very much. So the term fawn means barbarian, and that was used quite often when there was any kind of food coming from the Americas to describe Uh it. But more recent naming conventions uh, replace fawn, which means barbarian, with either si or yang, which means either western or ocean. 
So that's like the more mm. politically correct modern way of doing it. So clearly if they're like they've been like, oh yeah, the barbarian eggplant, like that's our favorite food, then it's been there for a million years, which is super cool. Um I love it. Right? Just like <sighs> finally someone said it. Uh <laughs> barbarous food being brought to us. Just kidding. Tomatoes. I can't believe I haven't told you this, by the way. The most insane thing when we were talking about tomatoes is potentially not like an edible thing. So Perry said to me one day, she's like, yeah, I was sitting down having dinner with my family. And my dad's like, you know, when you eat a tomato and how your tongue gets all tingly. And Perry goes, oh, yeah, like, that's normal. And then her mom looks at both of them and just goes, are you both fucking stupid? You're allergic to tomatoes, clearly. And it took until Perry was, like, in her 20s for this to happen. And her dad, much later, to realize that they were allergic to tomatoes. I feel like I know so many people who've had very similar things, like, like with eggplants. I know a lot of people who are allergic to eggplants by the same Really? Way. I feel like yeah. eggplants are the most innocuous food. I eat them and I'm like, this is delicious and wholesome and I just feel so nice from eating it. Yeah, I don't know about eggplants. Really? The, the, the mushiness and the like, I've, I've had like very deliciously prepared eggplant and very like poor eggplant. <laughs> I think I want to attribute that exclusively to the quality of the chef and not necessarily to the food. That's rude of you. I feel like I usually have like an eggplant in the fridge actually which is like a strange staple to have because you know I never have food in my fridge. That is weird. No. Anyways. So now let's talk about Africa. So tomatoes are being introduced into Africa either through monasteries and convents using like the seeds were being brought over and they were being planted as crops to feed the personnel of these institutions or we see them being brought over through the, the Portuguese slavers. Uh, yeah. So less fun way of doing it. Although really yep. is religion any more fun? Who's to say? Nope. Nope. <laughs> it's but by the, yeah. By wow. the end of the night. Mm, yeah. Whole can of worms. <laughs> Uh, by the end of the 19th century, tomatoes could be found as crops across the entire continent of Africa, which is a huge expanse of space. And again, yeah. when I was doing my research on this, it I didn't find anything necessarily like super historical about it. It's just like, yeah, they planted them and then it happens. But a lot of articles, and I didn't have time to read these and I'm very sorry about this, that came up mm. were like men planting tomatoes and like reclaiming the crops and stuff like that. So apparently there's some real gender politics going on there or maybe there isn't. I don't know. I read the title, not the article. But anyways, clearly this what it's saying about this though is that it's central enough to the culture that we have to discuss it, which means that's hugely yeah. important. Yeah. Anyways, so the Americas didn't catch on to eating tomatoes until much later. Some even fearing them until the 19th century. And again, I don't want to really speak too much on this because I know you have your own research and I'm not really sure what you found. But from what I read, it seemed as though it was super regional which areas were eating tomatoes. Like some places were like not interested. They're like, nah, -uh, this is some nonsense food. It's going to poison me. I don't like this nonsense at all. And then other places were like, yeah, let's do this. Um, so in 1897, soup mogul. What a fun word, by the way. The mogul. Joseph Campbell came out with con oh what did I say the word wrong no were you thinking for some reason like the sport no I was thinking like the guy's name was like Sue I don't even know <laughs> that would be really fortuitous like his parents would have really thought that out um it's like you know old soup mogul oh I, I can't mogul. even rephrase 
you know, hey, have you heard about Soup down the street? He's uh, really into broth. Anyways, Soup of the Mogul family. Yeah. Um, so Soup Mogul, Joseph Campbell, a la Campbell Soup, uh, came yes. out with the condensed tomato soup. Though the first recipe for this comes from Maria Parloa, whose uh, 1872 book, The Apple Door Cookbook, describes this now classic dish. So, again, America's clearly fucking with tomatoes. They're, like, they have tomato soup. That's great. But, like, some people aren't on board. Which, I feel like some people still aren't on board with tomatoes. I mean, like, obviously the consumption is extremely high. Like, the production is extremely high. But, like, I feel like it's such a controversial thing. Like, the amount of people who are, like, no tomatoes on my burger. No tomatoes on it. Nuh-uh. No way. Yeah, like, like full adults who just, like, won't eat a tomato. I'm, like... As someone who has two food aversions, only two, which I think is a very reasonable amount as a grown adult, I, can, I can't understand it. Because even me, like, I feel shame about my food aversions. I don't relish in them in the way that I feel like these tomato haters do. Yeah, I feel like there's, like, a very specific, oh, no, I don't like tomatoes. Like, mm. yeah. <laughs> so that's all I have. I was going to talk about... Oh, no, I have one last point before we move on. Mm -hmm. So I briefly talked about Israel and their cherry tomatoes, (laughs) which the mind simply reels. Yes. But my last point is in Santorini, like as this was all going down in 2010 about the tomato, cherry tomatoes in Israel, Santorini got involved as well and was like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) no, 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 playa. We invented the cherry tomato. And everyone was like, that also doesn't make sense. Like, I don't know what y'all are on <laughs> it, about. It was, like, it was literally first. Like, the tomato, the cherry tomato was the first one. <laughs> and so, anyways, but because, I don't know, probably racism, uh, the European <laughs> Commission granted Santorini a protected designation of origin for Tomatoki Santorinus. So literally in the same way that fucking champagne and like, is it Iberian ham? Is that the one that has it? And like, mm. like a bunch of other like, and the fish sauce that we talked about. They're like, yeah, these fucking tomatoes in Santorini, they're special, bitch. So, wow. wow. Anyways, that's all I had about the history. Please continue. Okay, that's great. Um, <laughs> no, it, it was, that was very great. Um, okay, so I'm just gonna, like, jump in kind of where you were saying about, like, so I didn't know that there were some places in, like, North America or, like, specifically the States that just, like, straight up were, like, tomatoes can, like, get bent. (laughs) I love the phrase get bent on a side note. Like, I feel like it just has the real, like, it has a real good connotation of, like, that, like, up yours arm gesture. Mm -hmm. Not the hand gesture, the arm gesture. Full arm. Yeah, the full. Um, but... Like, unlike literally every other agricultural industry in the late 19th, early 20th century, tomato production in America was, like, super decentralized. Fascinating. Yeah, and it was basically because everyone wanted to overcome the fundamentally seasonal nature of tomatoes. That's so interesting, and yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so they were just, like, the tomato growers and, like, producers were spread out all over the country so that, like, by virtue of varying climates and, like, growing seasons, you could have fresh tomatoes available pretty much, like, 12 months of the year. Oh, that's so interesting. Was, mm. So I'm guessing, oh, like, obviously, just by what you're saying, there weren't greenhouses at this time. It wasn't, like, there was um, temperature controlled. It was literally just, like, here's some fucking things in the ground. Let's hope for the best. Not immediately. Okay. So, like, greenhouses will come into effect, like, a little bit later. So, this is, like, in, like, the 1800s. So, it's kind of, like, right... Like, cuspy. I, mean, I don't even know. 
yeah, it's like people are just growing tomatoes and they're like, yeah, like we would like to like get tomatoes. Things are like, we're slowly in an industrializing like revolution kind of. Mm. And like towns are like cities are more of a thing. And so it's like the rural communities nearby cities are growing tomatoes and like just shipping locally. Because transportation isn't quite good enough to like fully ship fresh produce from like California to New York. So, so you've got to grow tomatoes in like New Jersey. So are the tomatoes in New Jersey getting to New York and also to LA or sorry, California? No, like no. California producers are growing their own and like shipping them to LA or whatever. I mean, LA didn't really exist in the 1800s, but I'm not the truth. Um, but okay. I'm just like, I don't know why I'm confused by this, but it's like, so the entire, like not one single person has access to 24, seven, 365 tomatoes. It's just the country as a whole has access to it. Is that what we're saying? I mean, now I feel like I'm getting trapped in my own very generalized statement of, like, an entire book. That <laughs> also, I'm just, like, this. being really pedantic right now. Like, there's no reason for this. No, I mean, I think that they were, they were, like, they were shipping it around, but it was still, like, like unlike as it basically we're going to see that it becomes later. Mm-hmm. It's not like tomatoes are only being growing in, like, one or two spots. They're being grown all over the country and, like, shipped mostly more locally or, like, around. Got it. Sorry. Continue. No, I feel like I like dug myself into a hole by not really knowing my own research. Yeah. So this like article that I was reading basically talks about how like the desire for year round crops was like definitely not a new thing for North American colonists. So we see like crops like beans, the use of salted meats, corn is a good example. Have you had corned beef hash? Obviously not. Oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) I've never had it. I want to try it anyways. Corned beef just, like, grosses me out, but I know it's, like, it just, it looks like worms because <laughs> of the way they cut it. I don't know. Anyway. So, yeah, but it, this is all, like, super indicative of the fact that, like, all of the colonizers, like, the people who immigrated to the quote-unquote new world came basically because of the promise of abundance. And so much of how early colonial American, like, food ways developed can kind of like be traced through a search for like a stable, continual food supply. Because if you think about it, it's like they're coming from Europe where it's like overcrowded and they're poor as shit and like just eating like bread. It's so funny. Okay, this is another thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is how like, I don't know, when I was young, my mom's like, yeah, if you go to prison, you just have bread and water. And I just remember being like, what a nightmare. But now as an adult, I'm just like, well, would it be sparkling water? Would it be some nice like crusty bread? Sourdough. What's the deal? Look at No, rye. it's always stale bread. It's always stale bread and you have to dip it in the water to moisten it. Did you never watch like a cartoon? I'm sorry, you know I didn't watch shit. I was too busy watching What a Girl Wants, the iconic film starring Amanda Bynes. So basically, so since the very beginning of its North American cultivation, the tomato was being engineered to suit both producers and consumers. So they're cultivating and selecting for specific qualities like size, color, mm-hmm. taste, and but like especially shelf life yeah, and an earlier harvesting season. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So we see 1820s, 1830s, there's a big influx in printed recipes for tomato sauces, ketchups, and pickled tomatoes. So that shows like a growing public interest. And the fact that... Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, and a growing interest in like having them not fresh. Like they're only looking at ways to have them like canned and like preserved. 
Yeah, so it totally, it's, exactly, it's, like, literally what I was about to say. It's just, like, it's, no, I think it's, you're picking up on it. It's, like, they're trying to find ways to extend and preserve tomatoes, like, beyond their, like, natural, fresh season. Because, like, they love them so much. Mm. And I guess, again, it's, like, it's a nice, like, fresh food. It's, like, colorful. Mm -hmm. It's a good veggie. Do you know, and this is not really based on either of what we would have researched right now, but just a curiosity. Do you know, like, in the 1800s, what, like, what was the, I, I imagine that the concern in terms of your food and your nourishment was literally just to get as many calories in as you could. Like, it wasn't super yeah. specific to, like, oh, like, we need to make sure we have our vegetables and stuff like that. But, like, do you know if there was any, like, research being done about, like, the importance of having, like, fruits and vegetables in the diet or, like, that sort of thing? I would imagine not. I think, like, a little bit, I mean, it's, again, kind of going into that, like, old classic tale of, like, concern about, like, I don't, like, there, there's kind of, like, a weird nutrition thing, like, about, like, the poor and, like, children. Ugh. And I think that they knew that scurvy existed. I forget the timeline of scurvy. And, like, the need of, like, vegetables. We were talking about how pirates were so excellent at work the other day. And uh, we are just like, well, yeah, you just have a bag of lemons and some rum and you're set for life. It's like, yeah, that is. Should we get pirate ship tattoos? Absolutely not. <laughs> the rise of industrialized canning in the second half of the 19th century obviously, like, super played into the desire to preserve and again we'll get back into that mm -hmm. um in 1909 the usda estimated that consumers purchased approximately six pounds of canned whole tomatoes so they were buying remarkably like fewer pre-processed tomatoes uh, like ketchup and soups mm -hmm. so canned tomatoes are basically like this proves that they're considered by these consumers like a reasonable stand-in for fresh tomatoes that's so interesting. And, like, the idea that perhaps ketchup was seen as a stand-in for tomatoes, at least initially. Is that something that we I would... think... I mean, I don't know. I think it was more like, this is still a time when, like, consumers would rather, like, make their own food. Like, they're not oh. buying as much processed. I mean, the sort of the thesis of this article, and then, like, the chapters of this, like, one book that I read... Mm -hmm. um, which I just didn't write down the title of, so <laughs> sorry. Check that out in the references <laughs> section later. Um, was basically like a lot of research has been done on like processed products like ketchup and tomato soup, but actually like those didn't have as big of an influence, like nearly as big of an influence until like after World War II. That makes sense. Interesting. Like people because were still... Mm -hmm. They were still, like, obsessed with, like, actually like, the idea of, like, a fresh tomato. That makes sense. Yeah, just because in terms of, like, all the other stuff where we've looked at, the, like, processed kind of timeline doesn't start until after the war. So it would be too mm -hmm. soon for that to be happening. Hmm. Okay, good stuff, good stuff. Yes. And I think basically, like, what we're going to kind of get into, and again, like, the sort of the thesis of this book, is, like, the tomato basically spurred the whole, like, processed food like revolution oh interesting is it because and i kind of vaguely skimmed this in some of the articles i read that like um tomatoes because of the insanely high acidity in them are super well suited for canning i mean yes but it's also just like well i'm sorry we will continue. get there I'm we will sorry. get there i'll shut the fuck up oh my goodness we're only like 1909 um okay so early 20th century 
like cultural ideas uh, cultural ideas about what a tomato should look and taste like basically begin to solidify so it's like it should be red because that represents like ripeness and juiciness mm-hmm. So at this time, like, there were still, like, people were eating, like, yellow tomatoes and, like, green tomatoes. So the idea that, like, canned tomatoes should always be red. So it's, like, you're not going to get a mix. Like, we're getting much more into, like, the idea of, like, a very specific, um, like, standardized That's really version interesting. of a tomato. And so advertisements for fresh tomatoes at this time focus very heavily on the earliness of a specific variety's harvesting season. So there's varieties called Earliana and First of All. First of All. And so these would be tomatoes that people would be like, this is the advertising for like the seeds and the plants themselves as opposed to like the fruit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they're advertising for like, I guess, home growers and then also like bigger like producers because, well, yeah. So like, as we can see here, so these Earliana and First of All uh, varieties were purported to ripen a week to 10 days ahead of other known varieties, according <laughs> to this one advertisement. And much like now, consumers were willing to spend way more for out-of-season produce. And farmers had, like, this indicates that farmers had an economic reason to produce early crops. There's a market growers journal reporting in 1912 that farmers' profits dropped by up to 25% after the first two weeks of harvest. Really? Yeah. So it's like they're making basically you make so much more money buying it by being able to get out an early crop. It's like first to market, basically. Yes. Which is like and it's I guess everything. Yeah, and like I guess if it's the winter and people haven't been able to get tomatoes or have been like barely able to get them earlier, they're gonna spend way more to get those earlier tomatoes. I mean, I feel like I'd spend a fuck ton of money getting a first pomegranate into the season, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah, I mean, we still do it all the time. I told you about the time I saw a woman trying to buy a $13 mango. That's horrifying. Demand for uh, fresh tomatoes in winter and early spring basically started to push Florida into the tomato production like market domination. Uh, Mexico also became an important producer at this time, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. Some consumers were not altogether thrilled with the quality of the Florida, like especially Florida tomatoes, because like transportation of agricultural goods was like not, again, super great at this time. W.F. Massey, who is a horticulture expert apparently, (laughs) he quips that Florida tomatoes were, quote, pink and hollow, and that he had not, quote, seen a solitary red tomato from Florida. Shady, night shady. Hey. So, so night shady. And so that's in like the <laughs> like nineteen like early nineteen hundreds, like nineteen twelve, nineteen twenty kind of thing. So one way to kind of counteract that is greenhouses and hothouses. Because tomatoes could be grown more locally and then they were able to like ripen on the vine rather than being picked green and transported. Hothouse growers used very specific labeling and packaging to market the supposed superior quality which we like still see today yeah oh that's so interesting it's interesting actually reading this because i always assumed that hothouse like meant that they weren't as good which is like a weird like i don't know why i as like a child thought that it probably has something to do with it just means intervention which like we've really been schooled to think of like any sort of human intervention in food processes is like not a great thing Mm. 
Or that's yeah, what I, I think would you're right. think. So after World War II, tomato industry, which had, as I've said, long been spread out over the country in order to maximize its growing potential and to stay local so consumers could have the freshest produce, uh, became definitively centralized in California, which was the hub for processed tomatoes, and Florida, the out-of-season, i.e. all-season queen. All-season queen, y'all. What does <laughs> processed tomatoes mean when in reference to like California as opposed to Florida? They're being canned. Oh, okay. Yes. Sorry. My apologies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know. It's like the weird, they're, it's like processed tomatoes is, I guess what, like tomatoes that are being eventually turned into tomato paste or like canned. Mm-hmm. And then the other like fresh tomatoes are called fresh market tomatoes. Interesting. There was a lot of language in the research that I was doing where I was like, I feel like I understand this, but I don't know. Like some of the wording I'm like, oh, like interesting. What does that mean? Yeah, like, it's one of those things where it's, like, this is, like, you're using normal words, but I know that this is, like, jargon and maybe means something else, but Mm -hmm. I'm not, like, I can't bother to figure it out. And also, I don't feel like there's some real gatekeeping in the tomato community. (laughs) Not to be that bitch. So, yes. So, this industrialization of the tomato Mm -hmm. basically completely changed the way we eat. According to this article that I read, but I am convinced. So tomatoes were a key component, are a key component of modern American food culture with its focus on heavily processed heat and eat convenience food. It is important to remember that California and Florida agricultural industries rely heavily on migrant labor. So again, throw back to the depressing avocado episode conversation. Oof. I actually did start a jar. I've got like five bucks in it because I put a quarter in every time I eat an avocado. Good for you. I haven't had an avocado since, but I will. Well, good for you as well. <laughs> I just. No, I mean. I've been exclusive. Was, it sounded really sarcastic, but it's like, good. We shouldn't be eating these. No, no, no. It's not like, like conscious. It's just like, I've been exclusively eating takeout, which is worse because I'm just using delivery apps, which are evil, but convenient. Yeah, well, what can you do? Yeah, so California and Florida are obviously very close to the Mexican border. We can throw back to the Bracero program, which is that migrant worker Mm -hmm. program from the 50s and 60s. Uh, So yeah, 50s, 60s, California tomato growers employed. I I mean, I guess they were technically employed, but it's like, anyway. Can we really count employment if you're literally not being paid a livable wage? Hashtag the entire world right now. Yes. So yes. So there relied so much on migrant workers that they didn't even think about the like potential need for mechanized harvesting options. They were just like, why would we need to like use a machine? Because we've got so much cheap labor. It's like, dude, it's the 60s. Everything's mechanized. That's actually so interesting. That kind of goes back to like Egypt and the fucking pyramids where they like didn't, not that they didn't like invent all this technology because they were very technology, technologically advanced in Egypt, but like they literally didn't develop a lot of the things that they could have because they had so much manpower. Yeah. They're just like, ah, we're fine. Yeah. (laughs) This is like literally cheaper and easier. Dark. Horrifying. Anyway. So tomato harvester, which is a machine emerged just as the Bracero program was coming to an end. So that's 1964. And it was basically just in in time to save California tomato growers from like a serious labor shortage because the Bracero program ended and everyone had to leave. (laughs) 
had to leave. What a nice way to just pick fourth importation. Yes, so good. The development of the mechanical tomato harvester was like actually a very difficult thing to do. Like, especially since it was invented with almost zero help from the agricultural industry it was designed to support. (laughs) The scientists are just like, hey, we got this cool thing for you. You want to talk about it? And they're like, fuck no. They're like, nah. (laughs) Like, that seems too hard. It's like I'm I'm busy smoking a pipe in my field while I watch all these Mexicans do all the work. (laughs) I'm sorry, is that not the most accurate depiction? Probably. Uh, so yes, so tomatoes, as you perhaps have experienced, are soft and fragile. Really? <laughs> yes. But they also, like in terms of like a har- from a harvesting standpoint, require numerous pickings from the same plants in order to mm. maximize yields. Because like traditionally they ripen at different points. So a machine would not only have to perform like a, the skilled action of doing like picking it, but producers would basically need to like grow an entirely new plant. So it would be growing one that ripened simultaneously? Yeah. So so basically, Jack Hanna, who was the plant breeding specialist who spearheaded the mechanical harvester's invention, worked for over, like, I kept seeing, like, different things. I was like, sometimes it was like, he worked for a decade, and sometimes it was like, over 15 years, and then it was like 20 years. So he worked for a long fucking time mm-hmm. to finally create the ideal mechanically harvestable tomato, which was something that ripened uniformly, mm-hmm. came from a smaller plant with fewer fruits that came off the vine easily, but not so easily that they're just going to like fall off like on the ground during harvesting. And the fruits were much sturdier because like it's going to get thrashed around a bit. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> you look confused. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking to myself like how sad it is that we can't go back in time and taste these like foods before. Like I, all I ever want in like, when people are like, oh, where would you, would you go back in time? Like what period? It's like, no, man, I just want to eat the food before we started fucking with it. So I compare it to what I have now. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll go, we'll get there though. So, oh, and also the plant has to be like, he basically bred it to be like a lot more like corn and wheat. So it grows like mm. super upright and really close together. Uh, so it's called the VF145. <laughs> so sexy. <laughs> I think it's just like, I don't know. That's like some kind of technical thing. Um, And the first prototypes of both the plant and the machine were released in 1959. And by 1964, this VF145 was the dominant tomato variety in California, apparently. Hmm. But again, this is in California where we're doing processed tomatoes. So, like, the tomatoes that are going to be canned and come from the States are going to be this specific kind. That's not to say that, like, a fresh tomato from, like, Mexico or from Florida might be a different kind. Because, actually, Florida tomato farms are not as conducive to the harvester. Because the mechanical harvester needs, like, super dry, like, flat lands, which I guess they don't have in Florida. I assume Florida's, like, a fucking swamp, isn't it? most i mean parts of it yeah that's really interesting to you just in like again i'm thinking kind of to wine like where you have some mechanized harvest and then you have some that's hand-picked does it have something to do with the fact that like the tomatoes that are coming in california again aren't like you you don't require like the same level of care with something that's going into a can just in the way that you don't require the same level of care is something that's going into box wine kind of thing 
I think a little bit. Yeah. I mean, nothing I read really like mentioned that as a fact, or Mm. if it did, I was like skimming and didn't see it. But I think, I think that that is a part of it. Mm. But it's also interesting, just the one last fact about like this California and the harvester is that like, obviously it totally like revolutionized the tomato industry in California. And one of those things was by like actually decreasing the amount of farms for tomatoes because small time farmers couldn't afford to make the switch to mechanization and therefore couldn't compete. So not only was the tomato industry becoming more centralized in just these two states, but it's also becoming like a, just like a larger and larger, but fewer like singular farms. Yes. Like, like everything. It's like four companies own all of the foods. What fun. So Florida, back to the swamps. Mm. Back to the swamps, Shrek. (laughs) No, thank you. Shrek is the most iconic film of the 21st century. And I defy you to say otherwise. Name a movie with more cultural relevance. Name a soundtrack to a movie with more cultural relevance. That is a great soundtrack. It is. Perry and I put that on just for fun sometimes. (laughs) I think that that is like a very specific, like, (laughs) trait of our, like, specific year. Because I have, like, five friends who do the same thing. That's hilarious. I'm glad to know that, actually. Anyway, so back to the swamp. So again, because Florida can't use this harvester, I guess like, again, according to this one article, they're still using a fuck ton of migrant labor. Hmm. Uh, Emo Cali in Southern Southern Florida, didn't look up how to pronounce that. I'm probably saying it wrong. Mm. Uh, Is the tomato capital of the United States. It has also been called ground zero for modern slavery. I'm so sorry. I don't know why I'm laughing. Yeah. So, yeah. So you could read the article, The Price of Tomatoes by Barry Estabrook for a reminder that many times the people who pick our produce cannot afford to feed themselves. (laughs) If you want that fun. Um, Mm. Just one last thing about that. The CIW Coalition of Emocali Workers, which is just like a nonprofit, I guess. It's just like an organization to support those workers mm-hmm. campaigned for four years and finally pressured yum brands who own Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC, Long John Silver's and A&W to give workers a one cent raise in 2005, which is obviously like that's a fucking pittance for anyone, but especially to these companies. But it added $20 extra to the average $50 a day wage that the pickers were making at the time. That's horrifying for so many reasons. Like, one, the fact that they're working so many hours that it adds a $20 additional. Two, that it was a mm-hmm. four-year legal battle? Well, it's more like, just like a pressure thing. I, or It's like, kind of complicated. And again, yeah. it's like, the article's like maybe older. And then I also read some things that like, maybe they were kind of like reneging in a certain way. Oh but God. I don't know. This is so depressing. So, yeah. Yeah, there was also like, again, maybe tomatoes are like another... God, I'm not going to be able to eat anything jar. without putting a quarter in a jar. You literally aren't. Ugh. I mean, maybe in Canada things are better. Maybe in... Anyway. us Just all of the migrant worker issues aside. Florida tomato growers, like, in their mind, their main issue in the mid to late 20th century was competition from Mexican and Caribbean 
imports. <laughs> so there was like a ton of protectionist policies that have been implemented, implemented and then struck down again and again as Florida growers lobby to maintain dominance in the market. So 1969, the USDA called for minimum size standards on fresh tomatoes, which like they kind of was like, oh no, it's because of blah, 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 blah. But basically it excluded a large percentage of Mexican tomatoes from American markets, which was completely the intention. And that's so interesting too, because like, it's just allowing these exclusively like overproduced, over like modified tomatoes into the market. Wow. And then that becomes a standard. That- yes. So oh, yeah, Mexican yeah, yeah. farmers were obviously like pissed off. This They have this quote, the U.S. encouraged us to grow a big crop using machinery bought in the U.S. And now they're trying to keep us from selling it. It's like, yeah, that's fucked. Isn't that capitalism in the fucking nutshell, though? Like, here, buy this thing to do something with and then don't do that thing because we're going to do it instead. Yep. Because now you're too good at making too much money. So yeah, but so yes, obviously Mexican farmers were losing out in this, but also consumers were because now they only had access to Florida tomatoes, which as we've mentioned a little bit here, and as I will mention again, yeah, considered inferior in quality and they had to pay more for them. So then eventually there was a judge who was like, you can't know, like this isn't going to happen anymore. So that was defeated. But um, yeah, Florida tomato producers are still just like constantly whining about Mexico instead of working to make their tomatoes taste better because capitalism. Mm-hmm. Speaking of trying to make tomatoes taste better, let's talk about the flavor saver. Oh, baby. Which is spelled F-L-A-V-R-S-A-V-R. I hate that. It's rough. So, yes. So this, it was the first genetically modified produce made available in grocery stores. So late 80s, scientists at CalGene, a small biotech company in California, isolated a gene responsible for releasing polygalacternase, maybe, Mm. how you pronounce it, an enzyme important in the ripening process. So they discovered that by reinserting the gene backwards and upside down, the enzyme release was blocked with uh, like, which slowed the rotting process basically. So ripening, which is what gives the fucking flavor to something is now being stopped so that eventually they won't rot. Yes. I mean, I don't know that I'm explaining it properly. It's basically just supposed to like slow it down so that they could like ripen on the vine longer and then be picked. Uh, Anyway. So yes, as we've, As I'm sure you maybe know or don't, supermarket tomatoes are picked green, i.e. flavorless and hard, then sprayed with ethylene gas to turn them red and making them look fake ripe. So that's why they taste like shit. I actually didn't know that. That's so horrible. That's like most, I think we kind of talked about that like a little bit with avocados where it's like they spray it with like a thing. So the CalGene team basically hoped that the genetically modified flavor saver would be able to ripen on the vine longer and thus taste better while still like lasting during industrial transport. Uh, at the time, there were no GMO foods on the market, so there were no FDA or USDA or just like literally any standards. And then the flavor saver basically became the model for all GMOs to come, with the FDA deciding 
that the developer's opinion that a food was, quote, generally regarded as safe was enough. And so, like, no rigorous FDA review would be required. Again, like, and I don't want to speak out of turn here, and I don't want to be, like, that person that shits on the states, but, like, what the fuck? Like, how many goddamn times have we heard in, like, just different contexts, like, it's close enough to safe, or it's good enough, or, like, there's not so much of this dangerous chemical or like it's like the same as being like there's only like three shards of glass in it you're good to go like what the fuck are people doing i know well and it's like it's tricky because i don't want to just like shit all over gmos because there are ways to genetically modify things that are like fine i mean like as we've kind of seen in a way tomatoes as we are eating them now are genetically modified just by virtue of like careful like cultivation and like selective breeding and everything's like a hybrid this is so, like, the thing is nothing is that we're eating anymore is the way that it was before and like that sh- and like again kind of how we talked about in the fish sauce episode was just like the search for like authenticity and like original like flavor profiles is like kind of bullshit and like everything's changing constantly so we shouldn't be like afraid and like reticent about that but there's also a point where it's like why are we eating this monstrous food yeah yeah well and again so it's like in this instance like they're basically taking out and like just like altering one gene from like an actual tomato whereas like some gmo things are just like taking a gene from a completely different plant and inserting it and that's just like "Eh, it's fine probably is that the the crapple no what is it it's a crapple no i can't sorry what is apple the pebble like a what is it a pear apple apple pear apple Apple pear. pear Uh, I feel like that's like a crossbreeding situation, but see, I get those two confused. I think crossbreeding is kind of the same thing in my head. I mean, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, continue. So, but the most hilarious thing about the flavor saver that like it was ultimately a failure because it just like didn't do what it promised. It wasn't even flavorful. <laughs> Trash. Yep. 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 Finally. The post-war period that we're all here for. The one food trend that epitomized this time. Heavily processed food. Woo! We could talk a little bit about the quote-unquote de-skilling of the American cook and the alienation of consumers from our food and food systems. Mm. Which is just like a whole... I read this one article by historian Rachel Loudon. Mm. I don't know. That name sounds uh, titled, so familiar. Yeah, it's so this article is a plea for culinary modernism. And Mm -hmm. I read the one with the updated postscript. So I think the original article was 2001. And then this one was in like a book published in 2000, like like 2016 kind of thing. Hmm. And she basically just just like raging against the romantic nostalgic view of quote unquote traditional foods as put forward by proponents of organic natural and slow food movements interesting so she yeah so she discusses like like she's basically saying it's like in praise of processed food and she's talking about how they like processed foods are egalitarian and like because like if you're thinking about like actual traditional foods and diets they like it's were terrible unless you were an aristocrat like if you think about no makes sense completely like yeah like peasant food whatever you can get your fucking hands on yeah i mean like we were talking about earlier like with the early history it's like of course everyone was so jazzed about tomatoes is because before all they had to eat was like 
stale bread and water. Because, again, I feel like we're seeing that so much more about just, like, in general, like, a lot of things, not just food, but just, like, the flipping of, like, we've gotten to a place where, like, okay, we have everything, like, so processed, so done one very specific kind of, like, crappy way, and then everyone, like, turns against it and is, like, no, no, we want to do things, like, this authentic, original, great way, and then finally someone's, like, hey, have you noticed that that's, like, not for literally everybody, it's just one fucking percent of people, and that's BS? Yeah, and I think, like, like, sure, like, processed foods in a lot of ways like it's not necessarily like I mean I'm I've I've grown up believing in like the like goodness of like organic and natural and fresh foods Hmm. because like that's like the generation but it's also like to just like shit on processed foods all the time completely ignores the fact that like processed food and the invention of like foods that are I don't know not just like grown from your farm is basically the reason that people are like taller, stronger and healthier today. It's like why we're not all medieval, like peasant sized. True. It's because more people had more access to food, just like in general. Yeah. It's always so like, again, I think about this constantly about the fact that they have a really hard time pinning down how many people uh, the Colosseum could have actually seated in Rome because people are so fucking different sized now. Like they literally are just like, yeah, we could assume that they were all this size or we could assume that they're all this size, but like, I don't know, man, like shit's weird. Yeah, it's crazy. It's because like our diets have changed so much. And a lot of that is because, yeah, like food was industrialized and like democratized yeah. in a way that it wasn't before. And I, it's quite elitist and bullshit of us to just like anytime, like why would we shit on anything that allows access to like that allows a wider variety of people to access to it yeah so she has this one like really great line it's quote only the rich could eat like peasants oh that's so fun yeah yeah I so good that. highly recommend this article technological advancements we've got the fridge we've got the freezer they're allowing people to keep perishable perishable foods longer and store leftovers mm-hmm. And are also facilitating the introduction of convenient heat and serve meals. Like you can keep a bunch of them in your fridge or freezer and then just pop them in the oven and go. Which is great because like women are being emancipated, sort of, and hmm, all that jazz. Sorry, I'm having a lot of feelings. <laughs> no, I know. The mechanical harvester, as mentioned before, is able to massively ramp up cultivation of tomatoes destined for processing which leads to an increase in the use of tomato paste. And tomato paste is basically the key ingredient in the development of all of these even more heavily processed foods because it's like a concentration of the tomato flavor. 1950, Heinz began processing all of its tomatoes just like directly into tomato paste and then slowly converting it into ketchup throughout the years which was, like, much more economical. And, like, no one had done that before, which is crazy. Uh, 1950 also sees a boom in pre-flavored tomato sauces. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah, so it's, like, before, I guess, people would buy, like, fresh tomatoes or, like, canned tomatoes and make, like, a tomato sauce or just, like, any kind of, yeah, like, soup or whatever from there. But then finally, like, in the 50s, it's got, like, spices and shit. And it's a huge focus on like advertising at this time because the 50s so it's appealing to the quote creativity and hard work of the home cook 
by reassuring consumers that the food company is taking care of some of their duties. And it's like all about making the housewife's life easier. Fascinating. So tomato consumption was also facilitated by and also helped to facilitate the post-war fast food boom. So obviously hamburgers, you need ketchup for fries and for the burger itself. And then also like there's a big slice of tomato on your burger. We've also got pizza, which is becoming super huge (laughs) in like the late 50s, early 60s. And this is kind of by virtue of its adaptability to modern cuisine. Uh, We see the first frozen pizza patented in 1954. This is so interesting because I told you before, it's like, oh, I remember when sushi became like super popular. But it's like, can you imagine being a kid and being like, fucking hell, have you had pizza? Yeah, my mom has told me like multiple times about like the first time she had pizza and was like, (gasps) and was like, I don't know, 13? Wow. Like, that's crazy. I'm, yeah. And it was like probably terrible, but she's just like, whoa. How could it possibly be terrible? By the 60s, tomatoes were more than just a food, but a symbol for the commodification and industrialization of the American diet, which is fast, efficient, but homogenous. And the tomato is kind of like part of this symbol of ethnic foods, ethnic and mm-hmm. quickly Americanized. So like, yeah, pizza, hamburgers, Italian food in general. Like. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that definition, though. I'm just going to talk briefly about tasteless tomatoes. So as we've sort of the through through thread of all of this is everyone just like constantly like bitching about the lack of flavor in modern supermarket tomatoes. (laughs) And there's lots of reasons why they're bred to be harvested and manhandled, the early ripening, picking them before they're like ripe and then spraying them with gas. Uh, But I read one study from like, these Swedish, I don't know, studiers. The Swedish scientists. Yes. They hypothesized that it could be because we keep tomatoes too cold. That's the whole don't store them in your fucking fridge or they'll get gross bullshit. Yeah. So flavors and aromas have been shown to be affected by temperatures under 12.5 degrees Celsius. Sugar levels have been shown to decrease and acid increase at those uh, same colder temperatures. A 2005 study reported that 70% of Americans stored tomatoes chilled and that 57% were unhappy with the flavor of the fruits. (laughs) That's hilarious. The Swedish study, they did like these like tests, whatever. It's like kind of boring. And they're like, nah, I'm not sure this is like a good enough test. We'll have to do more research. But they (laughs) saw that statistically consumers found chilled tomatoes to be significantly less tasty than unchilled ones. I wonder what it is that causes the sugars to convert to acids in like in when they're kept cold. Like what is the process that's doing that? I don't know. That's interesting. We should look that up. I don't know if the sugars are like necessarily being turned into acid. I think it's just like oh okay. It's just like a sugars are going down, acids are going up. All right. Couple last things here. Home gardening and farmer's markets. Yes! Yeah, so these are often considered, and are kind of are, uh, an opportunity for resistance against the pervasive commercialization of food production and consumption. And, like, one key symbol of, like, the commercialization of food, as we talked about before, is the 
quote unquote, tasteless, anonymous corporate tomato. So perfect. Yeah. But by virtue, like a fresh, ripe, like off the vine, big juicy red tomato is like the symbol of like fresh produce and like farmer's markets and like all of that kind of stuff. Like the Vancouver farmer's market logo is a giant fucking tomato. The farmer's markets and more broadly, the popularity of locavore diets and organic eating Mm. are predicated on the perception that local food is healthier, fresher, and tastier. So the tomato, as always, is totally symbolic of this. So we have this quote, for many, as much as the pink tasteless winter tomato represents some of the worst effects of commercial agriculture, the tomato also most fully represents the superiority of local fresh produce. Farmers markets epitomize very certain like philosophical and then like also aesthetic desires of certain consumers. Oh, damn straight. So we've talked about it so many times, going to talk about it again, the notion of the enlightened omnivore and foodie, like going back to plea for culinary modernism, the idea that like if eating well, that is to say like eating fresh natural foods is seen as virtuous, then eating processed foods becomes a sign of moral corruption or poor character. And it's like, we do it all the time. We judge like the mom who feeds her kids McDonald's. I like literally like as every single time we've talked about this on this podcast, it's like I feel myself throughout the episode have the, you know, roller coaster of emotions about it. Because on the one hand, it's so deeply ingrained yeah. in my brain. I just can't get it out. But on the other, it's like, I don't want to be a dickhead and I fucking love all food. I don't care if it's gross. I know. Well, and it's like you get into so many things like the like you see, I don't know, like a fat person getting fast food and you're immediately like, mm. well, yeah, of course you're going to be eating fast food kind of thing. Whereas then like skinnier people are like shopping in a farmer's market. It's like, oh yeah, like it's because they're healthy. It's like, I don't know, maybe they have anorexia. Have you asked? It's so interesting. I was actually thinking about this semi recently about like the trend within like Hollywood and like celebrity culture in general for like really skinny, tiny little like beautiful like Mm -hmm. starlets to be like, oh yeah, I eat whatever. Like I love pizza, blah, blah, blah. And then you have someone like, um, is it Melissa McCarthy? Sure. Yeah. Being like, I don't know, we eat really healthy at home. Like, I'm just this size. Like, don't know what and to like do about it. And, like, basically apologizing for like, being, like, heavy. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm eating Ugh. the veggies. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's terrible. Well, and, like, all of this, it basically goes back. I mean, we're kind of talking about weight. But then if you're also going to talk about, like, like price. Like, it is more expensive to shop at these, like, to buy organic and do all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um. It's, yeah, it's like that 18th, 19th century idea that being poor makes you a bad person, which is so fucked. Ugh. Wow. Horrifying. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and very, very prevalent. Like, you can't get away from it. I mean, we could also then get into the, like, racism of it all, but uh, it's bad. The sort of, like, main, like, book that I was reading for all this is, like, very focused in, like, this farmer's market section on how markets are like a forum and like a community meeting place, which like they are. But I think he yes. like glosses over just like kind of like we're saying, like the elitist white kind of like see and be seen nature of a lot of farmers markets, or at least like any that I've been to. And I would say that they are not necessarily a place for diverse groups of people people to intermingle. No. And like when you even think about like 
the barriers that you would have to get into a farmer's market. Like one, they're usually in quite heavily gentrified mm-hmm. areas, which means that the cost of living around there and like the cost of existing around there is so much higher. Two, they're usually on like a fucking Saturday morning. So it's like if you are doing it like that indicates like you probably have a nine to five job that you're doing so that you can be there because people who like work Saturdays are probably doing something like, again, like restaurant industry work, like that sort of thing, like which isn't typically like very yeah. wealthy people. Yes. Yes. Do you fucking love a farmer's market? I know. I do too. But it's, but like, it's true. Like I, I never go to the one near me because I just like. They're not at times that I can go. If I may speak briefly onto the idea of uh, uh, markets as mm-hmm. forums, like for that, I think if we go back to like again, because all I fucking care about is Rome. Again, hashtag this is a pro Roman podcast. Um, if you think about like Roman like marketplaces and that sort of stuff, like everything was done very like externally. Mm. Like the you would often find like mediation was a huge part of the legal system. In ancient Rome, it's a system where you have somebody like who's financially and socially above you and they kind of take care of you, but also you support like their bills and you support Mm -hmm. like their kind of like policies and like you show up at their fucking like funerals and parties so that they look cool. So like if you got a beef with someone, you go to the fucking marketplaces, you go to these like public venues and you sit in like alcoves and you have your top dude and the other person's top dude hash that shit out for you. Like one element of that is so incredibly social anyways it's just um it's really interesting because like we do see these places as being um like these real communal areas but they're not hugely melting pots when i say you're taking like your protector guy and it's like it still implies that you have some sort of social social clout to it to go there it's not slaves it's not you know really bottom of the totem pole kind of people and we see that carried through that's really interesting i'm going back to me arguing against how it's like not as much of a community as some people would like it to think so we Mm. have like the romantic ideal of like meeting your local farmer it's often like super awkward because like the consumers are obsessed with prices they manhandle the produce they request things that aren't in season which basically makes shopping locally a completely moot point Hashtag this is a white bullshit space. Love it. Oh, the urban gardener. I just like, I don't know why I'm so annoyed with people like gardening for tomatoes. In there. Like that's a nice thing, but I was just like reading. I was like, I don't give a fuck about this. Like I don't want to read it. So the urban gardener is another just like primo example, as we've been talking about, of the tomato being co-opted to fulfill aspirational notions of bourgeois bohemian lifestyle. Oh, because it is so bourgeois. And again, as we've been talking about this whole time, for yuppies, eating high quality food is as much, or perhaps like less, about taste as it is about achieving a specific status as someone with a culturally relevant and creative hobby. Like gardening. Not shitting on gardening. Like it's nice to grow something and like think that you're producing something lovely. Yes. And like, and I know that like plants are very good for like mental health. I've just... I'm annoyed. <laughs> I'm just annoyed by I'm just everything. trying to keep them all alive. Um, but I mean, like, when are we not annoyed this by This is everything? true. Uh, I just have, like, a very brief section about heirloom tomatoes, which... Yes, are, good. Like, obviously, along with organic varieties, have become very popular recently. Heirlooms are defined mm-hmm. as varieties that have existed for at least 50 years and are open-pollinated, so, like, they're not hybrids. Mm-hmm. They have become much more widely available in grocery stores as 
like part of the consumer's rejection of commercial tomatoes. Which again, so it's like basically kind of like to compete with farmers markets and home growers, even though obviously if like people are going to shop in stores no matter what. But it's nice. You can get heirlooms. It's a fact. Heirlooms, like not only heirlooms, but like just garden fresh tomatoes in general, they taste better. And like, it's so crazy when you taste like a really good tomato and you're like, what the fuck have I been eating before this? Mm -hmm. I have this very lovely quote about tomatoes. If summer had a taste, it might be flavored like a fresh, homegrown tomato. Tomatoes take the best that summer has to offer. Long, hot days, warm nights, and a smattering of afternoon showers, and turn it into juicy fruit. That's so lovely. I think it's true. Because as much as we want to talk all this shit about, like, everything (laughs) always, like, again, at the end of the day, like, food is nice. Like, it's a really lovely Uh thing. Yeah. And again, like, what a crazy thing for this, like, originally considered a poisonous plant. Just, like, come all this way and make us all processed food reliant giant. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, there's that. Um, May I briefly tell you a little bit about the Tomatino Festival? Or would you like to continue with yours? No, I'm done. That was all I had. Perfect. Okay, so I think this is probably the funnest thing ever. And we can... I'm sure we can talk shit about how it's stupid and, like, fucking elitist and bullshit and what a fucking waste of food, but I don't care. I want to no, do it. No, we already did that. Now we're just talking about fun. Now we're talking about fun things, which is what the Tomatino Festival is. So it started in the 1940s in Buñol, Spain, which, lol, middle of the fucking war in Europe, and we're doing this. Um, so it's an internationally recognized food fight hosted on the last Wednesday in August. So it was banned for a period of time, but this was lifted in 1959 and admittance is currently capped at 20,000 people, which is a good idea because before they capped it at 20,000, the year before they had 45,000. Like it was fucking mental. Um, like 20,000 sounds like too much. Cause like, like I assume this, this is like, it's like an old city, right? Like, or like town. Exactly. It's not like, like we're streets. going to Barcelona where the entire fucking city is like built for, not built for tourism, but like it, it used to accommodating that. It's yeah. like, no, it's a small-ass town. People bus in early in the morning at, like, 10 a.m., drunk on sangria, to go and throw <laughs> some fucking tomatoes around. And I want to be one of these cunts one day. Um. Anyways, so 319,000 pounds of tomatoes are imported for this festival. I'm going to say that one more time. 319,000 pounds. How much do you think the average tomato weighs? Like, not that much. It's not a full pound. That's insane. That's so many tomatoes. I can't even, like, I, I can't. Do they just, like, hide them around? You're going to tell me? I have no idea. I don't know where they fucking store them. That seems insane. Like, that's, like, there's not, like, secret, like, tomato caches so you'd be like, aha, and throw them at people? That would be amazing. No, I don't feel like the vibe is, like, real snipery there. I feel like it's more just like, hey, hey, let's get drunk and throw things. Um. Anyways, yeah. so there's three thoughts on the start of the festival. One, and this is kind of the most, like, prevalent i think is that some teens knocked over a cart of produce after uh the corpus christi religious celebration and then they just started fucking chucking at each other and were like this is hilarious let's keep on with it and then a food fight started well and it's like in the war yeah everyone so needed a like... little bit of levity right mm-hmm. um so that's one of them and the, probably the most commonly thought um the second is that it could be in response to a shitty performer at that religious festival and everyone just started throwing like <laughs> Which is also giving, like, rise to the idea of, like, why we throw rotten tomatoes. I read, actually, kind of an interesting article just about, like, why 
food is like weaponized in protest and it's basically yeah. the consensus of it is, is like cops not gonna come at you and like shoot you if you throw a fucking tomato at them they're gonna fucking shoot you if you throw a rock though so better do that i mean that that's a very like again white centric yeah notion that because you again won't be... yes thank you my apologies that is very... no i think no <laughs> it's 100 percent accurate white people can get away with murder um also thought as potentially being an act of political protest against the government at the time so both the theory of like the protest against the performer and the protest against the government the government are often dismissed one because of food rations at the time and also because of the sol- like the police at that point and no um we're not really allowing that sort of uprising to fucking occur they shut that shit down pretty quick um yeah anyways in 1957, to protest the ban on the festival, a tomato was buried, put in a coffin, and then carried through the streets of Spain. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Um, anyways. I love it. But because of that ceremony, it led to this massive increase in popularity, which is why this festival is so fucking famous. And you know what else? Yeah. It only lasts a fucking hour. It's from 11 to 12 on the last Wednesday in August. That seems wise. I think to have it any longer would be, like, way too much. Well, you just wouldn't be able to fucking, like, get enough tomatoes for it. Yeah. Um, so, then I also just wanted to briefly say the phrase tomato, tomato. That comes from the George Gershwin song, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, which is a fun song. And it goes, you say tomato, you say tomato, yeah. I say tomato. Yeah. Anyways, so I thought that was really interesting. And then we even have something like Rotten Tomatoes, the website, like, where the fucking concept of these, like protest kind of is now turned into a rating system because it's so deeply ingrained in our conscious um so my last thought before we leave off if you would is an ode to my new homeland of ontario where everything (laughs) is making me infected and i hate it just kidding it's fine here guys um mike Colley introduced a bill he's a an ontario like politician to designate the tomato the official vegetable of ontario and to designate july 15th as national tomato day it did not pass. <laughs> oh no, I'm sorry. I just, I love, it's like he's got such a bold, he's like, oh, I'm good. this is going to be my legacy. And everyone's like, no. Good try though. Uh, yeah, I got quite a kick out of that. Well, RIP, that guy who's definitely still alive. Yeah, definitely right? still alive. Well, it's 2016. <laughs> if he's dead now, then he's been living wrong. Or maybe living right. Or right. Ayo, here for a good time, not a long time. Uh Anywho, so tomatoes, it's wild. And I think, again, because we have focused a little bit on, like, foods that come from South America and, like, Mesoamerica, it's interesting to see one that doesn't traditionally, like, conform to these really traditional kind of patterns that we're seeing. So that's that. Tomatoes. Wild. Tomatoes are so cool and delicious. Yeah. Eat a tomato, everyone. They're, oh, when will this come out? They're probably no longer in season. Or don't eat a tomato because you're probably just supporting slavery. So I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Maybe just go to a farmer's market. Or don't. Just do, but I don't just know. Just drink some water. I think that's the only thing we can all agree on is hydration is key. Hydration is good. All right. Well, all right. Um. Yes. Again, follow us at Pantry Staples Pod. Rate, rate review, subscribe. subscribe. Yeah yes please smash do. that subscribe button as the teens as the youths as the say. youth say are, are we a tiktok now is tiktok still a thing yes. when this comes out tiktok know. will not be a thing anymore probably Ugh, we're such old ladies 
I can't get into it, but occasionally Allie will send me a good one about pooping. Pooping? Yeah, she sent me one and it was like this mm. fucking girl listing the times that she pooped at. But it was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good. I recommend finding that. Um, Sorry, cut right. that out. Okay, bye. Uh, okay. We'll see you soon. Oh, dear.